across the fruited plain. Pastor Paul here. We are continuing our study through the book of Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation, just one revelation, and that's of Jesus. Okay, before we go there, though, um, I'm having to reach the very back of my coffee mug collection to keep something new and fresh before you. Cafe du Monde. I'm sure there's a different pronunciation for the French among you. Greatest beignet place in the world. Many great memories there. Tons of great stories, none of which we'll tell this morning. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to be doing kind of an intro to Revelation 11. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what's going on. If you hear a voice in the background over at Intercom, it's the Soto Trails Elementary. Kids are back to school this morning. There's much rejoicing across the land. Let me pray. Let's get to it. Lord, your mercies are new this Monday morning, and we certainly need them. Lord, you've been gracious and merciful to us, but now we need today's grace for today's um, troubles. And so um, as we come to your word, Lord, give us a heart of wisdom and a faith to be able to see you, to walk with you, to run towards you, um, to have you reveal to us all the more clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. When I said we're going to be doing like an intro to Revelation 11 here, this is kind of a kind of a, a pop survey on the science of, of hermeneutics, and that's just how we read and approach and study a text of scripture. And and this is going to be necessary because beginning in Revelation 11 um, introduces us to all of those themes, events, happenings, um, such as the beast and the tribulation and. Um, the rapture and all these things that have come and kind of come uh, along with us as part of our our framework for understanding the book of Revelation and in order to understand kind of where we're going and how I think we ought to be reading Revelation it's going to be necessary to lay some some groundwork so we are going to be in the text a little bit but I need to need to fly fly above the fray for for just a minute and talk about um, some different ways that we can approach uh, the book of Revelation. So again, if you don't have it, Unveiled Hope, uh, Scotty Smith, this details his journey um, through in history through the book of Revelation. And um, it's something I think I want to commend to you. I think it gives a great balanced approach for understanding what it meant for the readers then, what it means for, the, for us now. But let me tell you just a little bit about my personal Revelation quote-unquote testimony. I, it was back in the 70s when end times fervor was sort of sweeping across the land. This is when you had books like um, How Lindsay the Late Great Planet Earth. Um, there were tons of books written on pop in popular literature about the end times and how the Bible fits into that. Um, Christians um, were at the forefront of this. And so I remember going out to a little place called Reach Out Ministries with my dad back in the 70s and studying the book of Revelation that later became Precept Ministries under K. Arthur. Um, but it was at that time that I was introduced to a particular way of reading the book of Revelation. And it's probably the same way you were taught to read the book of Revelation. And it kind of falls broadly under this idea of, of, a, of a dispensational, premillennial, hermeneutical framework. And it went something like this, and there's lots of variations of this, but, but it went something like this. We're living in the end times. The Antichrist could come back at any time. Uh, things are going to get worse and worse here on earth. 
that there is going to be the appearance of a savior for all mankind, the beast, that you have to have um, his mark to buy or sell. And those who don't have the mark, this physical mark, uh, you can't buy or sell. You'll be persecuted or thrown into prison or martyred. But um, just in the nick of time, God shows up, not, not in his public second coming, but in sort of this secret coming, second coming called the rapture, where his people are taken off the earth, taken up with him into heaven, where uh, they will escape the worst of this seven-year period of tribulation. It's during this time of tribulation that Israel will rebuild the temple and begin offering sacrifices, that um, they'll put their hope in the beast, the beast will disappoint, they'll finally turn to Christ, Christ will return okay, visibly and then set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand-year reign. And so, so this has been popularized by the Left Behind um, fictional series. You probably find this dispensational framework um, in the study notes of maybe if you have an older Bible like the Schofield Bible or the Ryrie Study Bible. And what's interesting about this is that this has just been the standard fare for, at least for the Western church in North America, for how we're to look at and understand the book of Revelation, Daniel, the end times. And... And so let me just say, make a few comments uh, about this, okay? First of all, this is what I just described um, is a relatively, at least in terms of church history, new way to think about the end times and revelation um, related to the rest of the history of the church. It's, it's probably about 150, 200 years old, comes out of the Plymouth Brethren movement um, of Darby and his followers. Um, it was uh, it was it was relatively novel in that sense. So things like the rapture uh, for the first 1,800 years of the church that people didn't even understand what that would be because they saw the scriptures as speaking of one coming of Christ, the second coming, not two second comings of Christ. And but just as an example, but but this sort of framework has kind of been established dogma. Okay kind of unquestioned, this is kind of what we assume, um, at least in North America, but it hasn't been that way for the history of the church. It's not that way in other segments of our culture, um, across Christian culture across the world, but it's one that looks at Revelation almost in an entirely futuristic way. That the first three or four or five chapters are for the church then, but for the rest of Revelation, it applies to only the church of the future. Um, it relies on a highly intricate, um, complex way of thinking about the scriptures. And you might have seen some of those end time charts that are full of dotted lines, like an organizational chart, or the history of the Presbyterian Church with all its denominational splits, and it's, it's, it's intricate, complex, and this verse in the Old Testament is matched up with this verse in the New Testament, and um, there's hundreds of variations in, in this. But... A couple of things I think have happened that have really, not just me, but I think um, scholars, theologians, pastors over the last 20 years, particularly to re-examine this common way of understanding Revelation, is number one, so much of this stuff that was said to be coming true hasn't come true. You know, that, that these ten horns meant the um, economic European Union, you know, in, in, in Europe and and clearly like that's that hasn't come true in the way people thought it was going to come true people who said i think jesus is coming back in 20 years that hasn't come true so a lot of these political events and things that 
We've been trying to tie Revelation 2 and current events haven't happened. Number two, I think we've come to understand that apocalyptic literature is a creative, imagery-driven, interpret things symbolically way that we need to be thinking about the book of Revelation because there are so many numbers, there are so many symbols, and um, and when we take them literally at every at every time, at every point, at every turn, um, we we end up with just complexities upon complexities that are hard to fit together. Um, we're wanting to equate every number and symbol with a specific person or event, and that and that's not the nature of apocalyptic literature. It literally means to reveal by symbols and numbers. In other words, to paint a picture. So you may say, Pastor Paul, why are you telling all this? Well, this is going to help us as we come to Revelation 11 when we begin to get into some of those familiar, uh, familiar dogmas of how we're to interpret um, this book that we're going to take a different turn. And again, Scotty Smith does a great job of introducing this. Um, G.K. Beale, I'm in his commentary on the book of Revelation. But as we're going to see, this has been more of the norm um, of the history of the church, but it will seem strange to us because of the culture that we've had over the past 150, 200 years. And so the concept I want to introduce to you this morning, then I'm going to show you where we see this in the text, is this idea of typology. And typology simply means New Testament writers taking themes or events from the Old Testament and showing how they are mirrored or carried to fulfillment in the New Testament. So for example, the Exodus, um, the people drawn out of Egypt, um, carried out of Egypt, God gave them their salvation, um, restored them. Well, we know that the Exodus, and, and according to New Testament writers, is a type or a picture or a shadow of our ultimate salvation, how good God delivers us from sin and death. It doesn't mean that the um, exodus and the um, moving out of the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea didn't happen. Of course it happened. It just means that when it's referenced in the New Testament, it's to draw it out and give us a more complete picture. And we see that, and there's a bird, and I know some of you want me to do damage to that bird, and one day I will. Um, chapter 11 talks about the temple and the two witnesses. Now, the traditional way, or let me put it this way, the dispensational way of interpreting this is to say that towards the end of time, Israel is going to rebuild the temple, Solomon's temple. And they're going to do this and begin instituting Old Testament sacrifices again. And they're going to be uh, coming to worship Yahweh and, and all these passages that talk about the temple, um, they're gonna be fulfilled in the rebuilding of this new temple. Um, by the same token, these two witnesses that are gonna be emerging at the end of time, these are really reincarnations of Elijah and Moses. They're going to be walking around the earth, prophesying. Um, they're going to be a witness. They're going to be persecuted, et cetera, et cetera. Here's, here's the problem with, with, with those interpretations. Okay? For example, um, we know from the rest of the New Testament that the temple, after it was destroyed in 70 AD, but even at the coming of Christ, when the veil was split in the Holy of Holies, um, has ceased to be the center of worship. Um, has, as, in fact, it tells us very clearly, we don't have time to turn there now, but look it up, Revelation 21, 22. It says very specifically, there will be no temple, okay, in the new heavens and the new earth, simply because 
there will be no need for one because God is present with his people. In fact, it would be right to say that no longer is God's presence typified by being in a building. God's presence is noted by him being in and with his people. So this is why Paul repeatedly talks about in 1 Corinthians, for example, how we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, how God's people are a holy temple. Think about 1 Peter. We just studied this past summer. We are being built up into a spiritual house. Ephesians 2.21 talks about the same sort of thing. And so what we come to understand is that when Revelation uses this imagery and metaphors of the temple, what it's talking about is not so much a physical building. It's talking about God dwelling with his people and, and God inhabiting his people, God being present with his people, that we are in fact now the temple. It's why we don't go to a specific temple, like say in Jerusalem, that, that, that would be the only place that we could worship because God's spirit lives within us now. Okay, talk about these two witnesses for a second. Um, it says here that, and you read, they definitely have ministries that, that sort of are patterned after Moses and Elijah. Okay, remember how we're drawing upon all that Old Testament imagery. Well, we know, I, I think it would be wrong to say, well, this is going to be fulfilled in a too literal, you know, Moses and Elijah coming back to life. When Jesus very clearly tells us, Elijah has come. And they said, well, who, where is he? We know he's supposed to come. He says, well, he has come in, John, in the form of John the Baptist. See, Elijah is a type of a greater witness. And so I think what John is trying to, to point us towards here is the twofold witness of the church, that in between the times of the first and second comings of Christ, the church is advancing and we are a witness. And yes, we're being persecuted and we're gonna talk about all this tomorrow uh, and suffering setbacks, but yet Christ is building his church. And, it, and there's two lampstands, two witnesses here because it emphasizes the certainty and the success of our mission and Jesus building his church. Now, I know we just unloaded a lot of stuff there, but I mainly did this so that you guys can begin to think um, about these things, and I think in a little more of a biblically grounded way, and do a study, okay, on the, on the use of the word temple, okay, in the New Testament. You will find um, that it is applied universally to the people of God, okay, for example. Think, look at, look, just do, a, do, do some studies on the typology that's present in Old Testament figures to New Testament realities, like for the Red Sea, that, that would be a great study to do. But I wanted to introduce you to that, okay, so that tomorrow we can dive right into the meat of Revelation 11 and following, and this can kind of give you a framework. So always bookmark this day, okay, August 31st, 2020, as sort of, hey, I can't remember what Pastor Paul said about this. Let me go back and read or listen um, to what, what we said. Now, understand there's whole seminary courses devoted to these things, okay? And we just tried to give a flyover in 10 or 15 minutes. But I wanted you to be able to have something to hang your hat on, some hooks to put your, to put your uh, theological interpretations on that I think will serve you in the future. And here's just one takeaway point, okay? Remember, that the book of Revelation is not just for some futuristic time in some indefinite future for believers to read and 
sort of interpret the times and the seasons like a, like a spiritual crystal ball or something. But the book of Revelation was given to these seven churches. It says something specific to them. And it's given to us, and it's relevant for us right here, right now, today. And I want you want to help, just as Scotty Smith writes about, about in his book, Unveiled Hope. I want to try to help recapture this book for you. Um, to make it a part of your biblical arsenal that you can draw from, you're not scared of, or necessarily always confused by. All right, so I'm sure that raised more questions <laughs> than the answers maybe this morning. We're going to return to these themes, okay? And um, maybe there'll be a time in the future uh, where we have a broader teaching context, maybe at church or something we live stream, uh, where we give more of a discourse in a, in a teaching session, an extended teaching session about some of these issues. But that should kind of give you an orientation now. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same station, looking at Revelation 11. Read your Scotty Smith book. Do some personal study. See you back here tomorrow. Lord, I'm really desirous for us as a church family to be able to recapture this, this last book of your holy scriptures. And that it would make a difference in our lives, that it would be the basis, the foundation for our hope. And so, Lord, we just ultimately, it's not about what I say or Scotty Smith says or GK Bill says, it's about what you say. And so, give us eyes to ear to see, ears to hear um, your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody, see you tomorrow.